Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Read It and Weep. We're the podcast about crappy audiobooks, fiction, movies, whatnot. Uh, I'm joined today by two very special friends. First, standing six foot three and wearing makeup on every inch of his shaved and tattooed body. It's Chris. Everybody say hi to Chris. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, of course, wearing his usual charcoal turtleneck, Harris tweed jacket, khakis, and collegiate cordovan loafers, it's Ezra. Hi, Ezra. Actually, uh, this is the traditional wear for professors. It is, as well as public speaking events and book uh, cover photos. Actually, book cover photos are <laughs> <laughs> are a kind of symbol. That's <laughs> they right. are. And I, of course, I'm your host. I'm a bristly tempest of a woman standing a mere four foot ten inches tall, bone thin with jagged features, and a dermatological condition known as vitiligo. My name is Alex. Hey, Alex. Hey, Alex. Yes. <laughs> vitiligo. Um, what, is, what does that mean again? Oh, it, that's, that, it's the, the whitening disease. It, oh. it, it turns my, my face to the color and complexity of granite. Um, Gross. I'm also sorry that you lost like a, a third of your voice box. I did. In, in cancer, the... But it only took you a week to get better because you're, you're a tough, tough old bird. I don't care about cancer. Yeah, I'm also an Asian woman and everybody calls me sir. Um, I'm going to... Just put it out there for people who haven't read this shitty book. Um, we're all making which fun is of most of you because it just came out. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> right. No one could, no one could want to hate this book as vigorously as we do. Um, <laughs> these are all ridiculous characters from the shitty book. Yes, yes, of course. Just, you didn't think that was obvious? I just want to make sure, in case anyone didn't do, like, I'm, I'm gonna be like Dan Brown. I'm gonna hammer home every single. <laughs> <time>. <laughs> Well, the first thing that we've got to do, as always, is come up with something, anything to compliment in this uh, amazing work. Who would like to begin? Okay, I got something, actually. I totally have something. Uh, really? All yeah, right. absolutely. So at one point, um, they give a, a cell phone number. Um, it's uh, you know, 202-329-5746, mm-hmm. and I called the number. Oh, I wanted to. I'm so glad you did. I called the number and it's uh, it's totally it says like you know, the message mailbox for Peter Sol- Solomon uh, is full. Nice. Um, yeah, and I was like, wow, good job, man. That's that's a that's a nice touch that I appreciate. So uh, my compliment is actually about uh, one of the settings that he uses, um, and I think he probably made up is this whole Smithsonian uh, secret lab. So the the whole um, the notion behind this is that uh, there's some really advanced, crazy magic science going on uh, in the United States, and it's happening at a place owned by the Smithsonian. They have this secret complex, or it's not so secret, but it's pretty secret. And one of the things is so secret that you have to go in, like, through all this camera stuff, and then you go through, like, 100 yards of just pitch black, following, like, you know, into this, like, techno-shielded, you know, little box where you do your lab stuff. And I thought that was a pretty cool idea. I mean, like, as far as making a techno fortress, you know, like, you could make it all gadgety and gizmo-y and whiz-bang, but instead, I think the simplicity of just, like, darkness and silence, like, worked pretty well. I, so I, I agree, though. That was kind of nice. So my, my compliment is related to that. My compliment is uh, the one really good scene in the whole book so far has was in that same darkness between the entrance and to the pod and the entrance to the lab, uh, is this chase scene between the bad guy and the scientist lady in 
perfect darkness in a large room that neither of them know the the makeup of it. And so they each have like one major disadvantage. She's got a cell phone and he knows that and that could get called at any moment which would give away her location in the room. And he is had been just had just killed somebody in a vat of alcohol, so he smells really like alcohol. So she's he's got a potential vis- visual claim on her and she's got this this smellatory claim on him. And olfactory. Uh, olfactory <laughs> claim on him. And uh, so they have this great chase scene where they're both like move a little bit, stay put, don't give away your position, don't make any noise. Oh, I can smell him coming because I smell the alcohol. And then they do two great moves. His move is he takes off his jacket and throws it to one side, and he takes off his shirt and throws it to the other side of her. So she smells alcohol on either side, feels trapped, and is against a wall, so she has to come towards him, which is very clever. What she does, she then opens up her cell phone and puts it on a little ledge and then bolts. So he sees the cell phone, goes running toward it, dives, face plant into the wall. It's a very clever chase scene. And easily the only thing I've liked about this book. <laughs> In fact, had this... nothing to do with the professor Robert Langdon. No, our, no he's, our hero. He's stupid. Um, but uh, I, I liked everything about that chase scene. That was totally fun. Yeah, and totally it made me good. think, it made me think that maybe Dan Brown does have like a knack for action sequences. And the problem with this book so far is six hours into it, there's only been 30 seconds of action sequence. Everything else has been this really painstaking explanation of a million stupid symbols that no one's ever heard of. Um, I, I could probably get behind you on this, because like, there's, there's one other thing where um, the, the pudgy uh, lab assistant gets drowned in a, like the... Right, the vat of the, alcohol I just mentioned. All right, um, with the giant squid. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that was kind of a fun scene also. I, I, wasn't, I, I did not hate that scene. I was like, well, you know could, what? It's because I hated her. <laughs> so. <laughs> you wanted Trish to die? Just, just, is it just because she's pudgy? Is that really it? Pudgy redhead lab tech? You hate her because she's well, pudgy. No, I hate her because she takes advantage of the guy who used to like her. But... Uh, <laughs> Okay, can we can we start ripping on this book? Yeah, let's that... yeah. let's break this down. Uh, Chris, why don't you give us a, a summary uh, heretofore? Okay, so near as I can tell, <laughs> <laughs> the plot of this book revolves around uh, Professor Robert Langdon, a Harvard professor professor of symbology, which is a fake topic to profess um but he uh he's good at looking at codes and things like that and he gets flown down to washington dc to give a talk um his friend invites him down and then it turns out there's no talk and his friend's been kidnapped and it has something to do with the stonemasons so then he's he's looking around and he sees his friend's severed hand on the ground, and it was placed by the bad guy, who's like this muscly, tattoo-y guy who wants the secret knowledge of the stonemasons. And so Robert has to work with the CIA and the architect of the city now and some other stuff to try and get his friend back without giving this guy everything that he wants. And somehow there's also his rich billionaire's friend's sister is doing some crazy science work at the Smithsonian, which is like outside of town and they haven't met up yet but they're both sort of intertwined so something's going to happen but it has to do with i mean basically there's a macguffin it's this little you know pyramid 
of the Masons, and apparently it unlocks things. And so yeah. we we we're gonna figure out what the bad guy, excuse me, wants with it, and also uh, you know what it does, and hopefully a professor in a turtleneck is going to save the world. I, so. I have two things to add. First, I think it's important, probably important to mention that the Professor Langdon is also the hero of the Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. Right. Okay. Good point. Good point. Uh, the other thing that I think I should add is you keep mention you kept referring to them as the Stonemasons. Is they're just the the Masons or the Freemasons? Um, which reminds oh, me. Oh, that's right. No, not that that's necessarily wrong. Just it reminds me that I've been consistently disappointed in this book at how little stone masonry actually happens. <laughs> There's just not enough dudes carving rocks these days. I also like whenever I hear Freemasons, I always assume that's sort of like the f- it's like a freestyle version of masonry. It's like dudes with chis- chisels doing parkour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it, it seems to me like he managed to take this wonderfully mysterious society and make it sound so trivial and stupid. Oh, yeah. No, really stupid. And and maybe it's just because, you know, um, Dan Brown takes the trouble of stopping the action about every... <laughs> I think for, for every 30 seconds of action, there's about 20 minutes of expository research explanation yeah. for, you know... What's going on? So I think like the fact that he's able to say, "Oh, blah blah blah, this isn't mysterious. This isn't mysterious. I know all about this." Like you know, there's this really long. Okay, so when they're in the rotunda of the Capitol, there's a severed hand on the ground. Professor Langdon is talking with some director at the CIA and the chief of Capitol Police. And near as I can tell, in the audiobook, they're talking for two hours of audio. <laughs> the way he interjects the exposition really bugs me. It really feels like the characters talk in Wikipedia. Um, and my, I, have, I have a clip about that really quick, if you guys will join me in listening to it. Although Catherine had never read the Zohar, she knew it was the fundamental text of early Jewish mysticism, once believed so potent that it was reserved only for the most erudite rabbis. For Robert Langdon, the Capitol Rotunda, like St. Peter's Basilica, always had a way of taking him by surprise. Intellectually, he knew the room was so large that the Statue of Liberty could stand comfortably inside it, but somehow the Rotunda always felt larger and more hallowed than he anticipated. Neckties had been required six days a week when Langdon attended Phillips Exeter Academy, and despite the headmaster's romantic claims that the origin of the cravat went back to the silk fascalia worn by Roman orators to warm their vocal cords. Langdon knew that, etymologically, cravat actually derived from a ruthless band of Croat mercenaries who donned knotted neckerchiefs before they stormed into battle. But here's here was what I was getting at. These are the most egregious examples, and this happens constantly throughout the book, and that is, he'll mention something, and then he'll say, the character knew, and then read, like, the trivia pamphlet for when you visit that thing. So to be like, so, so uh, like the worst one is the necktie thing. It's like someone mentions neckties and immediately he says, this character had heard that necktie derived from this etymology, but he knew it actually came from this other etymology. And the whole time I was thinking, Alex, the, the listener, knew the definition of the word pedantic before, but he has seen <laughs> perfectly embodied in this text in a way never before imagined. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I knew that. I knew, <laughs> I knew that. All right, it's, it's like somebody w- describing somebody else watching Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> so none of us have like the, the back cover of this, but I'm pretty sure if we did, it would say something like, 
Did you ever wish you could read the entire encyclopedia at once, but there isn't a thin <laughs> plot to take you through it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not so much a puzzle. It's, it's very simple how all of these things relate to each other. Alphabetical. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to compare this to the Da Vinci Code, which actually I, I read when it came out, and I had a, a lot of fun with it. Um, the Da Vinci really? Code, yeah, yeah. So there's there's one puzzle, right, where... um. It's uh, it's like written. Sling is written in uh, Leonardo da Vinci's hand, right? And um, and they can't decipher it. And it's actually you know, written out on the page. Um, and what it is it? It's backwards script. And I remember reading that at one point that you know da Vinci wrote in backwards script. Um, and so like you know it was the coolest moment. I like brought the book up to like the mirror and read the thing you know in the mirror. And it was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm smart. <laughs> um, which is a really cool moment, right? To feel like you're actually in it and you've like, actually solved something before the people in the book have. Um, Whereas, so like the Da Vinci Code makes you feel smart, this code, like this, sorry, this book makes you feel like you're an idiot. Pandered to? And yeah, you're an idiot in a really boring lecture hall. Like, <laughs> it's just a terrible feeling. Um, so I, I would just put this around, like, Dan Brown perfected his, like, his whole model, you know, in the Da Vinci Code, and this is just like, I don't know, fisting a dead horse. <laughs> Man, it's oh, always can, back to the ass with you, isn't now it? Now I can relate to this, because before, when it was about boring lecture halls in college, I was like, I have no idea what that's like. But then when it was like taking a dead horse and putting your fist in his ass, I was like, oh yeah, I remember. It's just like my life of never. <laughs> of last <laughs> week, Alex? Is that what you're saying? Of last week? <laughs> it was just like last week, when there was just a dead horse lying around, and I was bored. <laughs> my fist I was, was bored I was and like, had... Rubber gloves that went up to my elbow. What what are you gonna do? I mean, this is so right? bizarre. My rubber glove is too dry and doesn't smell like horse poop. <laughs> what could I possibly do to remedy this situation? Well, Maybe Dan Brown can solve this puzzle. <laughs> Hold the horse up to a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, you know, talk a little bit about and and have you guys, you know, kind of weigh in on this whole thing because we've been talking about things that Dan Brown says are true, like little historical facts and Wikipedia facts about the Freemasons, about Washington D.C. And then, and then there's some bullshit magic. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, the, the the female lead of the book, Catherine something or other, is uh, the billionaire friend of Robert Langdon's sister. And she is holed up in a secret research facility yes. at the Smithsonian doing something called noetic science. And noetic science appears to be the science of making shit happen with your thoughts. The, the, the book claims that she has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in scientifically rigorous tests that you can move things with your mind. Yeah, or that thoughts have their own kind of force in the world and everybody's thinking about one thing then it'll happen it's kind of like the secret really the more i think about it it is but, sort of like the um, secret. yeah but i mean so bullshit magic please uh please to be weighing in on this um there's a there's a quote when they first describe the experiment she's doing um and and i think it kind of says something about the book it says she's doing quote science so advanced it no longer resembled science I'm just going to put it out there. That's not actually what happens when you do something really advanced. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, like, elevate 
it elevates the discipline. It you know yeah. makes us rethink what's possible with this thing. But no, it 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 now looks like magic. Yeah, yeah. no, because uh, like if you make like a, like a meal that's really good, it still looks like food. I'm gonna say, <laughs> unless you messed up. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, and he definitely had some. He had some arguments. Uh, there's this one point at which uh, his brother, the the billionaire, and his sister are kind of arguing about uh, like it's a flashback to something that the main character never experienced, where they're you know, <laughs> the brother and sister are arguing about science versus old mystic knowledge, and the yeah. brother's winning because the brother's older and smarter. Yeah, but it's basically like okay. Um, you know, let's pick a science topic that's really advanced, like uh, atomic theory, you know? And apparently he comes up with some bullshit explanation about how thousands of years ago they actually thought about... One guy thought about this earlier. Yeah. And uh, She goes, well, what about polarity? And he says, well, there's all these great ancient philosophers who said that the world has full of negatives and positives. Yes, but that. what about polarity? What about right. the charge of ions? What about what about uh, electricity and magnetism? That's not what she's yeah. talking about, you idiot. Something about that is very different than eh, come and see, come and see. Exactly. Like, well, the ancient <laughs> Chinese philosopher said yin and yang, and I was well, that's not how a battery works. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, like, when you hang out with Dan Brown, if he really is an idiot. <laughs> well, I was I was reading on Wikipedia. About <laughs> You guys listen to a lot of Jay Z, yeah, yeah. So there's this there's this great line that Jay Z has uh, on the Black album, I believe, where he says, uh, "I dumb down for my audience to double my dollars. They criticize me for it, but they all yell holla," um, which is one of my favorite lines ever from a rapper. And I do sort of believe with him that it's true that he's doing dumb club hits when he could be doing smarter raps. I want there to be a line. I want one of the magical codes in this book. To be well, if you translate it into this language and then back to this language, <laughs> the symbols upside down. Read it in the mirror. It says, "Dan Brown is smarter than you. He wrote this book because he knew you'd buy it, you idiot." <laughs> yeah. There, um, there was a moment actually. There was sort of like when they talked, kind of pretty much they were talking about the Da Vinci Code, which is kind of fun. Uh, so it's basically some British woman picks up Robert Langdon from the airport and she's like, "So you're the one that you know wrote this." crazy book about um, the feminine uh, divine and stuff, uh, which is yeah. essentially you know, what, what Da Vinci Code was about. And he's like, yeah, that's that's me. And she was like, well, you really uh, you know, caused a big ruckus there. He's like, well, you know, I, I, I didn't mean to. And she was like, you certainly like putting the fox in the hen house. <laughs> which was my third favorite um, sexual innuendo of the book, actually. <laughs> Can I list the other two, actually? (laughs) You didn't even wait for us to ask. (laughs) Well, Ezra, what are the other two? Number two, Moloch's only remaining piece of virgin skin, the sacred place, had had waited patiently, and tonight it would be filled. (laughs) Which, he's talking about the part of his body that hadn't been tattooed. Yeah. Right, and I believe it was like, top of his forehead or something like, yeah right it was the it was the it was the tippy top of his head it was not his testicles so clearly he'd already had his testicles on the inside of his asshole tattooed <laughs> apparently it's a sacred space and it would be filled and number one quote couldn't help picturing peter's little package <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh he's got a little package
Um, we mentioned Malik, the the adversary in this book. Um, I, I guess I kind of want to talk a little bit more about him because he's he makes up the entirety of the plot, which is I kidnapped your friend. Just try and stop me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, I killed your parents ten years ago. <laughs> Can I tell you my two favorite things about Malik? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, number two. So he's covered in tattoos for his, his entire body, and he wears makeup in public. People don't recognize that he's covered in creepy tattoos. And every every person he passes the whole book is like, huh, that's a pretty tall, bald guy. Is he wearing bronzer? <laughs> every person he passes, it keeps happening, like security guards, police officers, strangers, the girl who like fights him before she gets drowned in the giant squid tank. Everyone goes... It looks like he's got a fake tan. That's weird. <laughs> because Dan Brown doesn't know how to not hammer things home. <laughs> I like that. I actually, I like that as a running gag where just they're like where the bad guy, everyone is constantly underestimating him, and it really frustrates him. But he's got these super creepy tattoos, and everyone just goes, "Wow, that guy. He's a little. He's more metro than I was expecting." Yeah. My number one favorite thing about Moloch is the. Uh, the audio book reader has this great Moloch voice, but Moloch's, oh, yeah. Moloch's thing in the book is like he's like a shapeshifter, sort of, so he can transform his appearance really quickly with the liberal use of a wig and a new jacket. Yeah, I love that, by the way, I love that Dan Brown somehow thinks that a six foot three bodybuilder covered in tattoos is a shapeshifting chameleon. He could be anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think that Moloch is kind of like um, Keanu Reeves, where he's like, <laughs> that's totally who would play him in the in the movie. Right? He, like he thinks he's like this great like great actor and great like master of disguise, but it's like it's always just like you know, <laughs> it's like a six foot three bodybuilder with a fake tanner. Uh, in one situation, he has like he's bald. In another situation, he has a bad blonde wig, and like it's like it's just the same guy, but I'm. I don't really want to mess with a six foot three bodybuilder. I guess so. <laughs> they're they're chasing him through the cap. The Capitol Police are chasing this guy, and they go, "We're looking for a six foot tall bl- a guy wearing a green jacket." And they pass a six foot tall guy wearing a blue jacket, and they're like, "Oh, you're not him!" And they keep running. <laughs> and then later they find the discarded green jacket, and they go, "Oh, curses! He was right there." <laughs> <laughs> So let's do our, our, our compliment, our final compliment for this third of this book, and let's move on. I'll, I'll go first. We'll go maybe in reverse order of last time. Um, so my other compliment is related to what we were just talking about, which is there's this fun moment where uh, the main character, Robert Langdon, calls the, the, the nerdy scientist girl to warn her that her brother's been kidnapped and everything in her world is about to end and there's a man on his way to kill her. But apparently they met at a party some time ago, and he sort of hit on her, and she gave him his phone, her phone number, and he never called her for a date. So this is like a year later, and she goes, what, let me guess, a bookish writer calling middle-aged scientists to talk about love or something? And he goes, oh my god, your world is ending, someone's coming to kill you, your brother is dying. And it made me wish I went to more parties, so I could get more girls' phone numbers and wait a year and then call them like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun. Hey, remember we met at a party a couple years ago? Someone is coming to kill you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, my compliment has to do with um, there's this great interaction also with Nerdy Scientist Girl and the guard at the secret research lab mm -hmm. where the killer has already killed her assistant Trish and he's like on his way or inside the research facility where she is. This is this pitch black you know room surrounding her, her dead zone room. But um, he's like reviewing the tapes and he's like, oh no, he's coming. He's like, She's like, how much time do I have? And he's like, wait, no, I'm still looking at the archives. He's probably already there. And there's this great Spaceballs moment. We're like, we're looking at now? Is now now? <laughs> like, no, so now, you know, we, we already passed now, and now we have to get back. And, like, they're just kind of talking about, essentially, a, a confusion surrounding a VCR tape. And <laughs> okay, I'm... Actually, I definitely know what I'm going to say. You guys remember in the notebook where... Um, where Noah Calhoun had uh, a helpful uh, African-American uh, elderly man. Mm -hmm. Yes. We had the reappearance yes. of the same guy, uh, if you notice, in this, uh, yeah. in this one, where it's like, uh, all of a sudden, here to save the day, and an elderly African-American man busts in, knocks out two, um, two special agents, and uh, saves uh, Robert Langdon. And it was like, oh, Morgan Freeman back again with helpful <laughs> advice. <laughs> <laughs> also, watch out for those bull queers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week for the first third of Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. We will be continuing to read this until we are out of short chapters. So, two more weeks, <laughs> hopefully. Please uh, don't read along with us, but if you do, you can buy the audiobook through a link on our website. We'd appreciate it. Readweep.com. So, thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, thank you, uh, Tattooed Chris. Yes, that's fine. Thank you, Professorial Ezra. Actually, you just talked in a code. <laughs> My... <laughs> I am a four foot ten Asian Alex. Uh, we will see you again next week. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Check us out on the web, read-weep.com. Give us feedback there. You can also give us feedback on the iTunes store. We love that. And we love email, podcasts at read-weep.com.